But we're going to be in John chapter 14 today, verse 1 through 3. If you're there to say, yeah. Yeah. All right, here we go. Verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you, Lord, for uh, gathering us together, that we get to worship you, as Darren was sharing earlier, that we get the opportunity, the privilege of coming into your presence and worshiping you. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence through Jesus Christ. Thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for preserving your word and uh, giving it to us in a language that we can understand. I pray that you would teach us, uh, instruct us, guide us as we um, seek to know you through your word today. pray you'd guide my speech and my words and, and give us all an attentive heart to receive something from you today. I pray that you would give peace to troubled hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So let's just jump right back into verse 1 because verse 1 really sets the tone for what the whole sermon is about where he says, let not your hearts be troubled Believe in God, believe also in me. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. And this word means to be greatly distressed. It means uh, to be confused, to be disturbed. It's like um, when someone has passed, when someone has died. Jesus actually, this word is used whenever uh, Jesus goes to the funeral of one of his good friends, Lazarus. And whenever he goes and, and, and is grieving with all the people, it's where we get the shortest verse in the Bible that Jesus wept, that He was moved, that He had compassion. But right before it says that He wept, it says that He was greatly troubled. So it's this feeling you get when someone has died or when someone's about to die. Um, He uses uh, this word to comfort the disciples right after He has told them, I am about to die. So he's, He's meeting, He's having Last Supper, this is the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. And he tells them in this time alone with his disciples in chapter 13, verse 33, he says, little children, yet a little while, I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I have said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure, but part of that is letting them know that he's going to depart, that he's going to the cross, that he is going to die. So this troubling is what happens to you whenever you um, get news someone has died or when you get news someone is about to die, only has 24 hours to live. Actually, this word is also used uh, to describe that scene in chapter 5, verse 7, where it talks about this pool that was stirred up. It's that word, stirred up. It's, it's being stirred up in your emotions and in your spirit. And so the disciples here, they were stirred up. They were stirred with worry and doubt. And uh, they were stirred with confusion and uncertainty and fear. The person that they love the most and devoted their life to is, uh, has just said, I'm about to die. I've got 24 hours to live. And so they're stirred up. Have you ever been troubled? Have you ever been, had a troubled heart? 
I have had a troubled heart this week, actually. Um, I got news on Monday that uh, some, a young lady in our church who we baptized last year uh, passed away on New Year's Eve. And it troubled me. It troubled me as a young lady. And um, she didn't make it out of 2021. And it was very troubling. And I've been, I've been kind of stirred up all week trying to process these things and, and performing her uh, funeral and all of that. Maybe you've experienced uh, being troubled, a troubled heart. Maybe you've lost some, maybe you've lost a job. Or maybe you've lost some health and you've had some health complications or, or issues this year. Or maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe you have someone in your family who didn't make it out of 2021. And you know firsthand what it means to have a troubled heart. Well, we all know what it's like. And if you're too young to know what it's like, you're going to know eventually what it's like to have a troubled heart. So, so, so here's the question. What do you say to someone who's experiencing a troubled heart? You're friends with someone? They've gone through something, a loss? What do you say to them? Or what do you do? What do you do when you've experienced a troubled heart? When you're being stirred up? Um, really, that's what Jesus is seeking to do. He's seeking to comfort his disciples who are stirred in their hearts. And uh, so the kind of the main idea today is this, that peace for a troubled heart comes not from better circumstances, but from greater trust in Jesus. That's the first point. Peace for a troubled heart comes not from better circumstances, but from greater trust in Jesus. Just look, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. So he's like, I don't want your hearts to be troubled. Here's what you do. Believe in God. Believe also in me. It's interesting. He's he's not like, uh, the the solution is not better circumstances. He's not like, oh, it's okay. Things are going to be all right. It'll get better. It's not so bad. That's not what he says. No, he says, he says, believe in me. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Greater trust in Jesus. Uh, One author, I couldn't find the source, but he said, Jesus never wanted us to have a life without trouble, but he promised that we could have an untroubled heart even in a troubled life. Actually, he warns us that this life is going to bring a lot of trouble. It's going to be hard in this world. This world has fallen and broken. It's going to be difficult. So he never promised us a life without trouble, but he did promise that we could experience an untroubled heart, some peace for our troubled heart in a troubled world. And so Jesus comforts his disciples, which is remarkable that he is able to comfort his disciples in a moment like this. Just think about what Jesus is going through. He is uh, about to take upon Himself the sin of the world. He is getting ready to experience the wrath of God for sin on Him on behalf of everyone. Yet in one of the hardest moments of His life, He's thinking about His disciples. He's thinking about His friends. And He says, look, I want to comfort you. Yeah, (laughs) Jesus is like, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of distressed. But I want to comfort you, and I don't want you to be distressed. He compassionately reaches out to 
comfort his disciples. So where do we look? Where do we look? What do we do when we're troubled? Um, Jesus reminds them to look to him. He says, believe in God, right there. Believe in God, believe also in me. Now, there's some debate on how this uh, verse should be translated, um, whether it's an imperative or indicative or all, all that. Um, is he saying what this says, which is believe in God, believe also in me, or is he saying, you believe in God, so believe in me? Or is he saying, you believe in God and you believe in me? There's all types of debate, but I think it, the ESV is translated pretty accurately because he's not saying, you don't believe in me. His disciples at this point, they are uh, young Jewish men, so they believe in God. They would have been known for having a belief in the one true God, the God of the, of the Bible. And they've been following Jesus. They devoted their life to Jesus. Many of them have already made confessions of belief or faith in Jesus. So he's not even asking them to or inviting them to believe in him for the first time. He's saying, believe in God, believe also in me. You believe in God and you believe in me. Keep believing. He said, you trust me. I'm your Lord. Keep trusting me. What, what we're about to go through is going to shake everything you know. Whenever Jesus dies on the cross, the world's going to be torn apart, and you're going to be tempted to question everything I told you. But trust me. Trust me. Whenever it gets dark, whenever you get stirred, lean in. Trust. Keep trusting. Keep relying. Yeah. One theologian said, Jesus' solution to perplexity is not a recipe, it's a relationship with him. He's not like if you do A and then B and then C in that order, then you'll be okay. No, he's like, this is a relationship. I want you to lean in. I want you to trust. I want you to know me and be comforted by me. And so peace for a troubled heart comes not from better circumstances, but from greater trust in Jesus. He's not called us to live in an uh, untroubled world, but to have an untroubled heart in a troubled world. Um, but the problem is that in times of anxiety and in times of stress, we tend to question whether God is trustworthy. We tend to question whether he can be trusted. Does he really care? Why should I trust Jesus? And Jesus knew that, so he gives them some reasons why to trust him. And uh, in the way that I want to phrase it uh, for our time together, I put it this way, that uh, Jesus makes room for you. Why should I trust Jesus? Because Jesus makes room for you. Look at verse 2. So he says, so believe in God, believe also in me. Here's why. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus makes room for you. He's like, in my Father's house are many rooms. Now, he's using the analogy of a Father's house. The Bible uses many different analogies for what heaven is going to be like. Different analogies communicate different points or different truths about heaven. Um, actually, the theologian author Pink says, says this about the different analogies. He says, the glories and the blessedness of heaven are brought before us in the New Testament under a variety of different representations. Heaven is called a country in Luke 19 and Hebrews 11. This tells 
of its vastness. It's called a city in Hebrews 11 and Revelation 21. This uh, intimates the large number of inhabitants. It's called a kingdom in, in 2 Peter 1. This suggests its orderliness. It's called paradise in Luke 23 and Revelation 2. This emphasizes its delights. It's called a father's house, which bespeeches its permanency. It's permanency. So, these different views of heaven throughout the Bible, is it a city? Is it a kingdom? Is it paradise? Is it a house? What is it? It's all of those things trying to give us visuals for feeling what it's going to be like. And this one communicates, the Father's house communicates a particular truth. It's permanency. It's home. It's home. Um, and he says, in, in my Father's house are many rooms. Now, your translation might say something different. It probably says, uh, could say mansions. How many of you, you, remember, you memorized the mansions version? In my Father's house are many mansions. And um, the word mansions that's translated into many English translations is from the Latin Vulgate because that's uh, what they chose, the, the word they chose in the Latin was this word that translates into English as mansions. But the original Greek word, which is mone, um, really just means dwelling places. It means dwelling places and, or a dwelling place. And the context of this analogy, so think about it. The context of the analogy is the Father's house. Well, inside of a house, do you typically have mansions or do you typically have rooms? Like if you're going to live inside of someone's house and they say, I have a place for you, a dwelling place, they're like, I have a room for you. I have a bed for you. I have a place for you to stay. You get to stay at my house, my mansion, and in my mansion are many rooms. And so it's really just a dwelling place. It's the idea of, of the Father's house is home. It's permanent. Many rooms. So rooms is a good translation. Makes more sense with this analogy, but mansions is okay. Um, I think uh, mansions would more uh, speak to maybe the splendor of heaven, but that's not what he's trying to communicate here. He's not trying to communicate the splendor of heaven. He's trying to communicate, I have room for you. I've made room for you. He actually says, I have many rooms. Many rooms. There will be many such dwelling places. Jesus could see what his disciples could never see. Millions upon millions, even billions, from every tribe and tongue and nation. And uh, his, in his Father's house, everyone on the world is, is represented in the Father's house. Many, many. He might have even smiled when he said, I have many rooms. Many rooms. There's the point is, there's enough room for you. There's enough room for you. So heaven, in this analogy, uh, the Father's house in this analogy, is heaven. And in heaven, he has a place for you. There's many rooms. And he says, I will go and prepare a place for you. So interesting. So... Um, typically, as Christians, we're, we're, kind of, we're encouraged to go plead with people to make room for Jesus, right? You go to someone who doesn't know Jesus, make room for Jesus in your life. Like, receive Him, trust Him as Lord and Savior. That's true, I pray that you would do that, but boy, should we, like, isn't that backwards? Like, shouldn't we be pleading with Jesus to make room for us? 
Like, he's not lacking for an eternal home. We are. If anything, we should be like, plead with the Lord to make room for you. But, he, but, here's, but here's the beautiful thing, is that we don't have to plead. We don't have to beg. That he delights to make room for you. He delights in it. He loves it. And it's because love prepares a welcome. It's just like what love, like expectant parents make room for their baby. You love to do that. My wife and I, we're about to have a, boys are about the twins. We're not going to have anything else. I'll tell you that. Nothing else is coming into the family. But um, <laughs> our twins are about to be one, okay, this month. They're going to be one. And, but, you know, we had the preparation of uh, when, the, when we were pregnant, or she was pregnant. I wasn't pregnant. Anyways, I'm doing a bad job at telling this story. When she was pregnant, we're anticipating the baby. We, you know, repaint uh, the room, and uh, we get uh, the crib ready and the changing station and get all the stuff and have baby showers and with joy and with excitement. You throw parties, multiple parties about the, you know, to make room for these babies. And then once the babies came, they slept in one crib, and we realized, hey, we've got, one crib is not enough for these growing boys. And so, had to add another crib, you know. And it's with love, not begrudgingly. Delight to do it. In the same way that someone who, who is hosting, if you're hosting someone, you, you delight to do it. I'm going to invite you over for lunch, and I, I've, we've, my wife has made a meal. I haven't made the meal. My wife has made the meal <laughs> beautifully, deliciously. So, so, but we delight. We clean up. We get ready. Love delights to prepare a welcome. And Jesus prepares a place for his people because he loves them, and he's confident that you're coming. He's confident that you're coming. And so in this uh, comfort that Jesus gives, it's like, don't let your hearts be troubled. In this comfort that he gives his disciples, he assures them of the final outcome. So if anxiety, partially if anxiety is fear in the unknown of the future, I'm worried about what will happen, what if, what's going out, what's going on. If it's fear in the unknown of the future, by revealing the future, Jesus is calming their anxieties. By telling them, I know the future, and this is what the future holds, and it's good things for you. It's funny because um, we love to speculate about heaven, don't we? We love to speculate. There are tons of books that are making millions of dollars speculating about what heaven is like. But uh, I can assure you of this. Any person that tells you, I know what heaven is like, you got someone died you know, wrote a book, 90 Minutes in Heaven, Heaven is for Real, whatever the book is, they're all over the place, none of them are really unique, but I've died, I've went to heaven, I have an authority to tell you what heaven's like, you want to say, eh, maybe, maybe. Um, Jesus here confidently can tell his disciples and tell us what heaven is like because he's been there. It's his, if he goes, if you go to your father's house, you're going home. 
He's like, I'm going to my, my father's house. There's many rooms. I'm going home. I've been there already. I know what it's like. It's real. And uh, he doesn't have to wonder about what the afterlife is like. It's incredible. It's a real place. It's a real place. C.S. Lewis, in his book, um, Mere Christianity, says this about heaven. He says, Creatures are not born with a desire unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find myself with no experience in this world that can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earth pleasures, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only arouse it to suggest the real thing. He's like, there are some desires that earth can't fulfill. That all of the pleasures of earth, which are you know, good gifts from God and used, used within context of how He wants us to use them, good pleasures of the earth, they never fully satisfy us. You always want more. You always need, it's, you're never satisfied. And he's like, that speaks to the fact that we weren't created for this world. That we're created for another world. This is not our home. We have another home. And so if you have this longing, this desire that earth can't fulfill, the unfulfilled desire is a reminder that heaven is real. God has planted within our hearts this desire for something more, something greater. And, um, and Jesus is making room for us there. Preparing a, preparing a place. Um, what do you think of whenever you think of Jesus preparing a place for you? I've heard different things over the years. Like, do you think of uh, Jesus in heaven right now? Like he's got his tool belt on and his overalls and he's climbing a ladder with a hammer and he's like working on your mansion, right? And he's just, he's preparing a place for you. He's got his saw out. He's putting the finishes and touches on it. He's sweeping, like he's preparing a mansion for you. Is that what you envision? When you envision Jesus preparing a place for you? Or a garden, yeah, okay, but there's no flower. I don't know. I don't, I don't, well, let's anyways. Uh, you come to my house that we had nothing. We, I don't like to maintenance anything that grows. But in heaven, your mansion might have flowers, a garden. Um, I think sometimes that's what we think of when we think of Jesus preparing a place. But that's not how it is. That's really not what he's communicating. Um, Jesus preparing a place for them is uh, going to the cross, rising from the dead, and ascending to the throne of heaven. The way Jesus prepares a special place for his disciples is by laying down his life so that their sins can be forgiven. The chapter 13 is filled with Jesus talking about him going. His hour has come, he's going to the cross. He's going to glorify the Father. 
He's gonna, the Father's going to glorify the Son. He keeps talking about, I'm going somewhere, I'm going somewhere, I'm going. And so clearly, His going is going to the cross. And here, when He says, I am going to prepare a place for you, He's speaking of, I am going to prepare a place for you, namely, on the cross. That it's by Him going to the cross that He is able to prepare a place for us in heaven. He makes room for us by dying on the cross for us. By making us right with God. That's how He prepares the place. Um, but <clears throat> some people aren't so excited about going to heaven. You know, there's, a, there's like a country song that says everybody wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to go now. Right? It's like no one's ever really excited about going to heaven. Uh, it was several Sundays ago, I was making my coffee at the coffee bar, and I was putting some creamer in my coffee, like you should, if you love Jesus, and you want to experience a taste of heaven, put a little creamer in the coffee. If you want to make it fun, put some caramel and hazelnut, and it'll be a delight. So I'm putting some stuff, and uh, one of Steve actually came to me and just made this funny you know, made a little jest, a little joke, and he said, oh, you know, that stuff isn't good for you. And I said, that's okay. I'm trying to beat you to heaven. Right? Like, I'm excited to go to heaven. Okay? And I'm not saying that you should abuse your health or anything of that nature. But point, it seems like many people aren't super excited about going to heaven. And um, so what hinders our desire? What hinders us getting excited about uh, heaven? And I think it's two things. Um, one is this, an unhealthy attachment to the things of this world. An unhealthy attachment to the things of this world. It's like, you know, actually, some of you, some of you actually have really good lives. Things are pretty good here. Yes, we're, things are difficult. Our hearts get troubled at times. But overall, I have a place to live. I have, I have food. I have clothing. I have friends. Whatever it is, some of your lives are pretty good. And it's like, I kind of like this life. I don't really have any desire to leave this life. Things are pretty good here. I like my house. I like my cars. I, I like my toys. I like the experiences of the earth. And then that can hinder our desire and love and excitement for heaven because we're so attached to things of this world. I, uh, whenever, I remember whenever I was a young adult, a young man, before... I got married. I remember loving the Lord and believing that He's returning and, uh, and saying, Jesus, you know, I, I can't wait for you to return. That's going to be exciting. Heaven's going to be awesome. But Lord, if you'd please just wait till I get married. Right? There are some things that I want to experience before I go to heaven. Like, and maybe that's you. It's like, I would love to go to heaven, but there are some things that I want to experience before I go to heaven. And if we hold on to the desires of this earth, yeah, that kind of hinders our hope for heaven. Earthly joys are just a foretaste of the full and complete joy that we have in heaven. Little vacations where we get rest and fellowship with our family is a foretaste of heaven. Sports, where you experience the thrill of victory. It's just a foretaste of heaven. 
good food and good drink should stir up in us worship and a longing for heaven because these things are just a foretaste of what heaven is going to be like. So don't allow earthly joys to diminish your appetite for heaven. Ask God to use them to prime your taste buds for heaven's glory. Lord, help me to not get so attached to these things that it kind of replaces my longing for spending eternity with you. But help these things to be a reminder to me. This is just a foretaste. Help me to just long for heaven and and, uh, worship you for all these things. So, So an unhealthy attachment to earthly things and a wrong view of Jesus. A wrong view of Jesus. Some, some people think that heaven is going to be, um, like they're not excited about heaven because it's like their view of heaven is we're going to be sitting on clouds and we're going to be playing harps. It's probably going to be music that I don't even like. And I just can't imagine spending forever just sitting there doing nothing. Or, or we think heaven is boring and it's going to be like being a monk for the rest of your life. It's like, uh, I don't know if I, it's going to be endless boredom and kind of blah and um, no. (laughs) That's not the picture of heaven that we get from the Bible, no. Now heaven is all about Jesus. And our view of heaven reflects our view of Jesus. And so if you're excited about heaven, I bet, you're, if you're not excited about heaven, I bet you're probably not too excited about Jesus. Because that's what heaven is going to be about. The less we think of Jesus on this earth, the less we'll be excited for heaven. We don't see Jesus as a good enough reward. Whenever Jesus gives these pictures of uh, the reward of heaven, and underneath all of that, he's saying, but I'm the treasure but I'm the reward. And we're like, oh, okay. Like we don't long for it. We don't want it like we should. It's, 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 um, I think when it was sometimes the picture that I get whenever we think of heaven is you have this beautiful, I mean, like it's a great subdivision and it's safe and and wealthy and nice, and everybody's got their own mansion. And if it's my heaven, everybody's got a lot of land around their mansion. Okay, I don't want to be next to anybody. Let's put mansion, no no neighbors, and then I have uh, your your dream car, whether it's a Ferrari or Lambo or uh, Corvette or whatever your thing, it's going to be motorcycles in my garage. It's like whatever it is, that's what you have, and you have your little family and, and, and just your perfect little life. Like, we think heaven is going to be kind of centered around us. It's going to be kind of fulfilling all of our personal desires, and we're going to get to live our perfect life, all the things we ever wanted, we're getting in heaven. Like, many of us, when we think of heaven, Jesus is not in the picture. And, and we just say, hey... Um, the problem with that is that's not what we get. That's not what heaven's described as. That's not what we should be longing for. Heaven is not the fulfillment of the American dream. What should excite us is, uh, is Jesus saying, you get to live in my house 
for eternity. You get, you get to stay with me. I'm, I've made room for you. Heaven is not you get your own little mansions. Heaven is we're all living in my mansion. And you get to be a part of my family. And you have a dwelling place there. Look at verse 3. He says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will, I will come again and I'll take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. The entire focus of heaven is being united with Jesus. Heaven is not great because there's no more sickness, no death, no pain. It's not great because the streets are made of gold and every tear will be wiped away. All of those things are true, but heaven is great because Jesus is there. But in all my years as a Christian, I've heard many different expressions of anticipation for heaven. I've heard people say things like, I can't wait to get to heaven to, uh, to see the streets of gold. That's got to be beautiful. Amen. I can't wait to get to heaven to see my mansion, how God has prepared this thing for me. I can't wait to get to heaven to see my dog. I just can't wait. That's the first thing I'm going to look for is I'm looking around to see my dog. And I understand love for dogs is a, is a powerful thing. Or I can't wait to get to heaven so I can see my grandpa. Or I can see my mom. Or I can see my dad. I can see... Or I can't wait to get to heaven to get my glorified body. <laughs> like, I can't wait till this body is perfect. And I, I can move how I want to move and I'll be thin, you know? Like, I can't wait to get to heaven to get my glorified body. Amen. All those things are true. Sure. But, I mean, in all my years of Christian, uh, as a Christian, I've been a Christian a long time, been in church a long time. I've almost never, if it's happened, it's happened one or two times. I've almost never heard genuinely first thing on my mind, I can't wait to get to heaven so I can see Jesus. So I can be with Jesus. So I can have unhindered, uninhibited fellowship and closeness to Jesus. The main attraction of heaven is being with Jesus forever. The comfort enjoyed in the presence of God. That's what should excite us about heaven. If, if I get to heaven and there's nothing, nothing, I, I walk in and it's just me and Jesus, I should be like, I'm happy for eternity. This is good. This is good. First uh, uh, Thessalonians is uh, one of the other kind of main passages we have in the Bible that describe for us um, the second coming of Christ, uh, he heaven, and all of that. And in First uh, Thessalonians chapter four, verse fifteen uh, through seventeen, says this: "For this we declare uh, to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord." will not uh, precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. It's talking about when Christ returns and we rise to be with Christ. Verse 17, When we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 
And so we will always be with the Lord. He says in verse 18, Therefore encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. And here's the words. Jesus is coming back to take us to where he is so that we will always be with the Lord. That's the encouragement. Now, now my, my concern is I don't know if that would be enough encouragement for many Christians. I don't know that it would. If, if you were going through trouble and I wanted to encourage you how Jesus encouraged the disciples saying, hey, Jesus is coming for you. He's coming back for you. He's prepared a place for you so that where he is, uh, you may be also forever. I think you'd say, yeah, yeah, but will I see my mom again? I mean, believe me, I, I want to I see all my loved ones. I do. But is there something greater in your excitement for heaven than Jesus? Because eternity, heaven, is great because Jesus is there. It's all about Jesus. The greatest blessing of heaven will be our ceaseless personal fellowship with the Lord Jesus, not the splendor of the place. It's the, it's the promise of the presence of Jesus that sustains us in the midst of difficulties. Where do I get peace for a troubled heart? It's not by better circumstances. It's by greater trust in Jesus. It's a relationship with Him. So what do I do? What do we do? Jesus makes room for you. What do we do? Um, invest in your relationship with Jesus. Today, this year, if I was speaking to a college student, a young man who came and said, hey, pastor, there's, a, there's this young lady in church that I'm really interested in. I would really love to date this young lady. She's real cute. I'd like to get to know her. And I'm like, oh, cool, man, great. Well, a church is a great place to meet people uh, who you want to spend life with. And so, great, have you talked to her? No, I haven't talked to her. But you know what, I'd really like to date her. Okay, all right. Well, say, say, say the next week he comes to me again, Pastor, I need to meet with you again. I just got to tell you, I have feelings for this young lady. I'd really like to spend my life with her. I want to date her. Well, have you talked to her? Well, no, I haven't talked to her. I, but I really think she's cute. It's like you're never going to experience a depth of a relationship if you never talk to her, if you never meet her, if you never get to know her. If you want to date, if you want to fall in love, if you want to get married, if you want to enjoy a life with someone, it requires talking to them. And it's not just whenever you start a relationship. It's uh, to maintain a healthy relationship. To grow in depth of a relationship. You have to talk to them. You have to have communion with God. So how do I grow in my love for Jesus? Maybe today you're like, you're right. You know, you're right. I'm not super excited to spend eternity with Jesus. That's not the main motive that I have for excitement for heaven. What do I do? We spend time with Jesus. How? Communion with God. How do we commune with God? It's very simple. I mean, very simple. Um, a prayer 
and reading his word. Prayer is us talking to God. Sharing with God what's on our heart. Sharing our day with him. Just as if you're in a healthy relationship, you'd share some things with your spouse. Some things you care about. Some things you're worried about. Some things that are on your heart. It's just sharing with God. Praying. And reading his word. That's hearing from God. He's written. He's like revealed himself. He's given us a lot of truth. A lot of promises. And he wants to speak to us through his word primarily. God speaks in other ways, so I'm not denying that, but primarily, He's revealed His Word to us. And so if you want to hear from God, read. Read. And that's the communion. I'm going to read, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to read, and we're going to have this relationship and this communion with God. And then throughout the day, I'm going to just seek to be in touch with Him and, and in tune with Him. I'm going to connect, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to seek to hear Him leading in my life. It's just a relationship. It's just walking with God. And I think sometimes you're in church a long time, you hear a lot about prayer and reading the Bible, prayer and reading the Bible, and you're like, why can't we go past this or something deeper? Well, it doesn't get deeper than that. If you don't get that, you're not getting anywhere. <laughs> a lot of it is just prayer and reading the Word. And with our distracted selves, we need help sometimes. We need accountability. So maybe it's doing it with a friend. Getting a, getting a friend um, or a small group. That's why small groups are so essential. Getting a group of, of trusted believers around you that are going to keep you accountable. Hey, man, have you prayed this week? How's your prayer life? Have you been reading? I know you started a new reading plan. How's that going? Man, I really need that because sometimes I get off and I get distracted. I need help getting back on track. Because what you find is that if you discipline yourself in prayer and reading, that it, you begin to desire it and you then want to do it and then you begin to delight in it. It goes from discipline desire, to delight, and now I enjoy being with God in prayer and in reading His Word. Um, it's the new year. It's a great time to start a new reading plan. They're about to have a Bible readers banquet for people who read through the Bible in 2021. If you've done that, sign up in the coffee bar and, and be a part of that banquet. We want to celebrate. That's a good thing. And they'll have another one next year, so so maybe it's not too late to start. We just got started. The year just got started. If you, if you read your Bible for like 12 minutes a day, you can read through the Bible in a year. 12 minutes a day. You can read through the Bible in a year. So, um, so I just encourage you to invest right now in a relationship with Jesus. We take comfort, really, that Jesus prepares a place for us, but he's using this life to prepare us for that place. Amen? Like, he, he wants us. What, what if this life is um, to kind of transform our heart to where we will actually enjoy the things that are in heaven? What if it's to actually, uh, like, form our appetite to love what heaven is about, which is about Jesus? What if in this life you got to the place where you were so craving heaven that like that stepping over that line from this world to the next is just the next step. It's like the natural next step. I'm just so enjoy Jesus that the only thing better than this is like being there with him forever. That'd be great. And the way we prepare for heaven 
spending time with Jesus, getting used to loving his presence. So trust Jesus and keep trusting Jesus. He is our peace in times of trouble. He makes room for heaven in you, and he's coming back for us. And we don't have to worry because we know how it all ends. So invest in your relationship with Jesus today. Would you bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, um, God, you are good. You are good. And Lord, I, I just pray that um, for those who are experiencing troubled hearts this morning, maybe they came to church with a heavy heart or watching online, they couldn't even get out to church because their heart is so heavy and stirred and troubled. I pray that today they'd experience the peace of God which surpasses understanding, which comes from the presence of the God of peace. And so I just pray that you would um, give peace to troubled hearts through belief and trust in Jesus that we would lean in, that we'd, that we'd invest in our relationship with you, that we just trust you with our future, with our life, with our eternity today. I pray that we'd be encouraged that, God, you make room for us. You make room for us. You have a place for us. And that we'd grow in our desire and in our delight of your presence. Father, I pray that if there's someone today who's never trusted you, who's far from you, that today would be the day where your Holy Spirit transforms their heart and just draws them to yourself. That they'd repent of their sin and believe in you for the first time. That you'd save them, God, through faith in Jesus. I pray that this year we'd grow uh, closer to you and grow in our excitement for heaven uh, because we're excited to be with you, Lord. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.